Welcome to Technovation. I'm your host, Peter High. My guest today is Monica Caldas. Monica is the Global Chief Information Officer of Liberty Mutual, a $50 billion revenue insurance company founded in 1912 that now has 50,000 employees and operates in 29 countries. Monica has been in her role for roughly six months and with Liberty Mutual for five years. That followed 17 years of General Electric. She's leading a modernization program of the 111-year-old company, developing what she refers to as a tech-forward insurance company. Among the ways she's doing so is by building greater data literacy across the organization. Monica is a remarkable process person, which has surely aided the company's progress tremendously. I look forward to covering all the above and more with her through this conversation. Monica, welcome to Technovation. It's great to speak with you today. Thank you for having me. No, it's a great pleasure. I've been looking forward to this conversation. Me too. <laughs> Thank you. Well, Monica, uh, why don't we begin with your your business? Uh, you are the Global Chief Information Officer of Liberty Mutual. And I think probably a lot of people who would be watching or listening to this are familiar with the business, at least to some extent. Why don't you provide a few minutes of uh, or a, a, a few, few lines of, of description of the business, if you would? Sure. Yeah. Liberty Mutuals, uh, we, we've been around since 1912. So so uh, we, we have a, a, a long history of helping our customers confidently pursue their tomorrows is what we like to say. And, um, and, you know, we are a property and casualty company. So think about auto, think about commercial vehicles, um, property, different types of risks. We're actually ranked 78th on the fortune ranking list. And we're the fifth largest global property and casualty insurer in the world. We have about 50,000 employees and we're in 29 countries. So we're a global company and uh, we are also very innovative. I don't know if you know this, but we were part of um, helping develop seatbelts and we were part of helping develop um, the, I don't know if you know, when you go up the escalator, there's a red button that says, if you have an emergency, you press that button. We actually were part of developing that as well. So so we have a history of, of looking for opportunities to provide much more than just um, you know the, the fundamentals of property and casualty. Got it. Yeah. Some pleasant surprises there indeed. Very interesting. <laughs> and thank you for that overview. Um, why don't we also, we'd love to understand more about your role as chief information officer. It's a role you took on about half a year ago or so. Um, you've been with the company a bit longer than that, uh, uh, about uh, nearly five years now. But um, talk a bit about your purview as chief information officer, if you would. Sure. So I am um, delighted that I took the baton from my predecessor, James McGlennon, uh, and I started this particular role in January of 2023. So it's been a few months and I have over 5,000 employees across the globe and we are doing everything from software engineering and we have a majority of our population of our team members are engineers. And so we're doing software engineering, we're, we're managing infrastructure networks, data, data engineering is a big, a big component of what we do. So we touch wing to wing of the operation, corporate systems, um, mobile apps, we do it all. Yeah, which is exciting that we get to touch wing to wing of the technology operation for the company and we manage it as well involving our third party partners as well. Very interesting. And, and uh, I know that from a past conversation you and I had, Monica, that you, you noted that a goal of yours is to be a tech forward insurance wow. company. Talk a bit about what you mean by that. Yeah. You know, I think that we all are trying to digitize as much of our processes as we can, whether you're in insurance or other financial services or manufacturing, different variety of industries. And so I don't think we're alone 
in doing that and going on that journey. But Tech Forward Insurance Company takes that to the next level of a wing-to-wing digital transformation. And so the way that I think about that is, yes, we need to do a, let's say there's 10 steps in a process. For us, it might be first notice of loss if you have a claim. Maybe one or two steps is we have a mobile app and we give you capabilities. And there's one step of that process or two steps of that process that are digitized. But a digital transformation in a tech forward insurance company will look at the entire flow of that process and will automate key points to make that customer experience less friction. So think about how maybe data moves between systems in the back end rather than someone typing it in. It's flowing seamlessly. Or maybe how a payment is issued rather than a check being sent. It's completely automated and deposited. And and if the entire wing-to-wing process is automated, digitized, you can actually issue um, a check back to the customer with greater speed. So a tech forward insurance company, I just gave a very small example, is not about automating everything and removing humans from the loop. It's really instead about understanding the customer journeys, whether it's an individual consumer or an agent broker, It's understanding the journeys, understanding where automation and digitization can help remove friction, provide a better experience, a better product, a better service. But when we go after that and to solve for that, we're actually looking at wing to wing all the pieces behind the scenes to actually make material difference. And so tech forward is looking at everything. And also, I think the other piece that sometimes companies don't spend a lot of energy on is what is the employee experience and how do we provide tools and capabilities behind the scenes to make employees experience faster, smoother, and and give information more at the fingertips to help them be more productive in their day-to-day. So there's a couple of, of factors that I think are different from just being digitized to being tech forward. That's a great overview, Monica. And it brings to mind your response highlights the fact that uh, the constituents that you are mindful of are perhaps a bit more vast than some of your peers. You talked about employees and the experience that you're helping uh, optimize their agents, brokers, obviously, ultimately, consumers or customers as well. And each of them, no doubt, have different needs. There's a tie, I would imagine, uh, or an overlap to the Venn diagram across those four constituent groups, but also a a portion that doesn't overlap. And, And I wonder, how do you think about your collaboration with Uh, an engagement of those different constituent groups to understand the different personas and the different ways in which you might serve them best. Yeah, you know, I love your point about the Venn diagram because that's a great way to frame how one thinks about the capabilities and the needs of an employee versus a broker versus an individual consumer and and everything in between. And there's definitely pieces that overlap in terms of maybe payment structure or seamless interaction of data. And there are others that a consumer, for example, may want a mobile app that is more seamless. They can take pictures on the fly, right? So so there are differences, but there's also uh, overlap. So the Venn diagram is a great way to think about it. And I actually always use that example of Venn diagram. So we're aligned of, of framing that. The other piece I would say is we believe that 
mapping out the customer journey, the employee experience, the agent broker experience, and mapping that through the value chain of how insurance works is a key starting point to understand what that experience looks like, and then having a feedback loop back to those different stakeholders and engaging them on in different ways, right? A consumer, it might be a survey or it might be a small focus group where a broker might be deeper conversations that happen more frequently and, uh, and more embedded. So there's different ways to do it. But the point is extracting that information and listening for what could actually be helpful in their day-to-day and understanding the nuances. So, so that's, I think, the high level. The other piece is to solve for this, you can spend years and years trying to fix and provide all solutions. So you really have to understand what differentiates the service or the interaction and, and really try to hone in on what really matters. So I like to talk about things in terms of steps, a 10-step process. If, if you're going and mapping the customer journey or the broker experience journey, and all steps matter, of course, but really having a conversation with them about, is it step six, seven, and eight? Is that the spot where there's a lot of friction? And if we solve for that and, and hone in on that, that will make a material difference in our interaction together. And really having that conversation is really important. So I would maybe summarize that having focus is really important. Understanding what differentiates you is really important. Otherwise, you're trying to solve for too many things and maybe you will make 10, 20% progress in all things, but ultimately not make enough progress to, to deliver a, a meaningful outcome. A very uh, interesting answer to that. I appreciate the uh, the nuance there. And I'm reflecting on a, another past conversation you and I had where you described some of your strategic pillars. And another one is win with data. And I wonder yeah. if you could talk a bit about your data strategy. Oh, uh, I believe that um, everything we do, data is the fundamental piece that will enable you to be successful. And so understanding what data sets are the most critical to what decisions and um, we're operating in a regulated environment. And so also being very careful and protective of our customers' data to make sure that we have the right um, sets of capabilities, policies, governance mechanisms to, um, to make sure our customers' data is safe and secure. Um, and, and so that's very important for us. So data is important on many levels. One, from a sense of stewardship that we feel about our customers and, and partners' data. Two, a sense of if we understand the data better, we will have better insights, which will enable us to offer better service, better product, and with greater speed which ultimately makes everybody win. And so winning with data is important in in those elements. And so the way we approach it is we think about, number one, do we have the fundamentals in place? Do we have the right governance mechanics? Do we understand which data domains across our business units? Um, How are they set up? How are they governed? How do we um, apply stewardship to it? And then we think about the data flowing through analytics and reporting. And now with artificial intelligence and generative AI, specifically a very top trending topic, those fundamentals become even more critical to get right. And 
for you know financial services in general, we have a lot of data, especially if you have telematics products or you have a hundred plus year old company, you have a lot of data. And so what you do with it and how you make sure you understand the accuracy of it and how do you make sure you understand if you're collecting it real time and what are you doing with it um, becomes, becomes really important. But I would maybe say one more piece, the heavy lifting and solving for data is not just a technology, um, ownership. Data is owned by every function in, in our operation. That's how we think about it. And what that means is there is a sense of accountability that every function, whether you're in claims or whether you're in finance or whether you're in technology, has to have a sense of data literacy. And so we have data offices that are set up in our business units, in our, in our uh, corporate functions, we have then within that, we have an executive education program and additional training programs that go throughout the entire organization to elevate our sense of what does it actually mean when we talk about data? It can be abstract in some sense. And so increasing the data literacy, um, not, not so much just for understanding you know, how data flows and moves and, and how do you create a better report, but also the responsibility and accountability that each one of us has in being good stewards of the data that we do have access to. So there's so many different ways to think about it, but maybe I'll, I'll summarize by saying that winning with data is about uh, both governing and protecting, but also in understanding how you use it in service of a better product or service for our customers. And that's the North Star as we think about our data sets. I particularly like that, that point of ensuring that you have data literacy and that there's kind of a common level of understanding across the organization so that you're sort of building on the same foundation. Uh, and you mentioned that you have some executive education programs. It sounds like some training modules and so yeah. forth. If you don't mind my double clicking on that a little bit further, because I think it's a really interesting point you raise and, and no doubt a powerful uh, way to ensure that 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 you're you're you have a strong footing and understanding as you discuss the you know what all this entails. How have you thought about curating that? Is, is it a combination of uh, a curriculum developed internally and 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 an ecosystem outside that you're drawing from? Um, would would be interested to understand as as to how you've honed that. Yes, um, that the training that we do, again, we think about all stakeholders involved in technology or data, right? Mm -hmm. And so what that means is when we develop curriculum, and we do, we have a training team that sets in technology. We have funding that to, to support that. We have a program called Executech which is focusing on a particular set of stakeholders. But then we have other training programs that are focused on engineers or focused on scrum masters. So we have a variety of training programs and modules that are then focused on different types of roles and, and, and skills that we want to develop. But specifically on the executive education component, we call that Executech. And uh, we, my, my CEO, myself and my peers, we make the commitment that we are creating the capacity for our top two, 400 executives across the company globally to get the proper training on what is an API? What is artificial intelligence? How are we using these models? How do we think about technical debt and modernization of legacy systems? 
And what is data? What is data engineering? How does data flow? So it can go from a basic level of, of just introduction. And then we, through the course of time, increase that to a, a, a higher level of maturity in engaging with the topic. And, and the point of that is technology is everybody's responsibility these days in terms of understanding what it can do the technology organization still has an important role in being stewards and champions of change in employing technology to solve a problem. But everyone that sits around the table needs to be beyond step zero of what, how do I click this presentation, right? They need to be well beyond that and, and somewhat well-versed in what can an API do and why does that matter to be part of that ecosystem? as an example. So Executech and our focus on training and upskilling all levels of the company and all roles and competencies is because it's it's changing so fast. One of, one of my favorite sayings, I believe it's Will Rogers, uh, says you can be on the right track, but you'll get run over if you're just sitting down. And, and that's the point, right? You may learn something and it becomes knowledge, but then you have to actually go and apply it to turn it into a skill. So you have to get involved in these conversations. And when you, just when you think you know how to solve it, a new technology or capability emerges. And so it is a life cycle that, that is created or, or maybe a flywheel, some people say, that um, takes that, you start to build a foundation, but then you have to continue to hone it and tune it as new capabilities or technologies come out. So it is a curriculum and we do have dedicated people for that reason. And of course, we absolutely leverage external partners to help deliver some of the content. We're, we're not trying to uh, reinvent the wheel of education, um, but we do believe it is very important. Understood. Yeah, I, I really like that. And you, you described a, a moment ago the modernization program as well, is that this is sort of part of that also. And it brings to mind another area that I wanted to raise with you. And that is, uh, I know that you're very passionate about increasing the percentage of spend that's dedicated to differentiation versus running the operation. And if one has a older infrastructure, and I use that term very broadly speaking, if your technology, uh, both practices and skills for that matter, to say nothing of the actual technology itself is antiquated, then a lot more of your time is going to be spent uh, almost by definition um, on the running of the operation as opposed to the differentiation. I wonder what what, are, what have been some of the levers that you've been pulling in order to uh, get that percentage uh, to the point that, that, that you think is appropriate? Yeah. And, and you'll see, if you look at different bodies of research, Gartner publishes material about tracking global IT spend. And um, for, for 2023, they forecasted a 5.5% increase. For 2024, they're saying um, the spend in IT goes up to 8%. And some of that is definitely attributed to new technology capabilities that you have to now operate. But also a piece of that is you have to operate. And if you're a hundred plus year old company, and or if you're if you're not as if you don't have as many years, but you have acquired a lot of companies, there's a cost to integrate, right? Um, and so there is this element and concept of how are you running your operation in technology? And so we do um, subscribe to industry accepted framework, which is how much of your budget are you spending on running the operation? And how much of your budget are you spending on growing, investing to transform, innovating? part of the operation. So if you just split those two and you look at research from McKinsey, Deloitte, 
a variety of different um, groups, you'll see that the average IT run grow run spend ratio is about 70 30 64 36 you know the best are probably 60s in that ratio and so for me and for us at liberty we're trying to get to parity where we're spending 50% of our funding on running the operation and the other 50 in doing the transform grow work that is hard to do when you have a diverse ecosystem of systems, when you're operating in many, many countries. And so it is even more important for us to have a strategy around modernizing, looking our technology landscape, mapping out how, what percent of the systems are you going to retire, evolve, um, rationalize down. So, so that's an important piece. And for us, uh, I always say we, we have to be both efficient and effective in how we spend IT dollars. And if you don't tackle the run side of the equation, it just the trend lines are up. If you think about inflationary pressures as well, we are we are definitely in the mix on that, whether whether it's contractual obligations or labor, et cetera. So it can quickly run away from you. And so um I think, you know, the most important piece of the, the levers, if you will, on managing that one is having clarity on how much you're spending and run and grow. You know, many operations don't have that clearly identified. And so we've spent a lot of focus and energy on making sure we have a taxonomy that we understand where the costs are going. We use a tool called Aptio to help us do that. So that's one. That fiscal responsibility starts with understanding your data. And so we just talked about data. You know, now we're actually talking about putting it to use. This is definitely one piece, which is lever one, understand how you're spending it, what percent of your spend is run, what percent is grow. Number two, then double clicking into run. How are you spending it? What part is on technology that is now in technical debt, meaning that it is you know, overdue for patching, for maintenance, or maybe it does no longer serve its intended purpose. It's no longer fit for purpose. How are you managing that? Or is it creating challenges for you to operate in modern ecosystems, for example? So having a, a purview, and for us, we map it out to say a percent is in this quadrant, a percent is here, understanding the risk, and then putting the funding towards modernizing. And then from there, seeing that you know not every year you can modernize at the same pace but having a multi-year glide path to get you to a better position and you know the other challenge is and i've talked i've spoken with several cios um at different forums and we're all challenged with technology you put in place today in a year or two it becomes technical debt because the world's moving so fast so having that framework that enables you to identify, to then map it out, and then have execution strategy against it and the funding to support it. I think those are the building blocks to sustain that. So it's not a one-time event. I know sometimes you hear a lot of different companies and I know, you know, different uh, publications have highlighted, oh, so-and-so's gotten rid of their mainframe. And it's like the one-time event. And those are big machines. Uh, but I think you have to go beyond the one-time event, managing technical debt, making sure that your run operation is in a sustainable state requires a, a glide path and a formula that goes well beyond one-time projects. 
Yeah, very interesting. And and I, I know, uh, again, from past conversations that you also, among the modernizing uh, uh, aspects of your playbook is a major cloud migration. Yeah. And I wonder if you could take a moment to, to talk a bit about the form that's taken and, and what you see as the value drivers uh, that come from broader cloud adoption. Absolutely. Uh, we've been on um, an accelerated cloud journey since 2019. Today, we're over 70% of our entire global portfolio in the cloud. Parts of my portfolio are 100% in the cloud. And so that has some limitations with legacy systems, right? If you think about back to the point about how do you make sure you have a modernization strategy that enables you to then capitalize on, on technologies and new capabilities, cloud being one of them. So we're all, we are well on our way. So that's, I feel great about that. Um, but why it's difficult because, you know, it's several years for us is because we're approaching cloud migration, not as a simple lift and shift, which I think gets some folks into trouble because if you don't rationalize and get ready for a cloud environment, you can find yourself on the wrong side of the cost structure. And so managing, we we approach it in, okay, what's the mandate? What problem are we trying to solve? Um, is it about modernizing and having a new capability? Is it about just the flexibility of compute? What are we trying to do? And then we work backwards and we say, are we ready to do that? And what do we need to do to, to be ready for that? And some of these, you know, when I say we're 70%, we feel fantastic about that. But the other pieces are more challenging ones to get there. And in order to actually migrate those pieces to the cloud, we are now doing modernization work. I almost say that it's like, you know, if you wanna run a marathon, you don't just jump out of your couch and start running. You have to start doing a 5K and a 10K and work your way up. And that readiness piece is really important. And I think that discipline of knowing how to approach it and then knowing the mechanics of how to do it is, is really important. On the other side, we talk a lot about costs. And I think several years ago, we talked about cloud as if it was going to solve all, all costs issues. And then those that got there early were like, oh no, in fact, it's worse. And so now it costs more. Um, and so some lessons learned from that for us, we've spent quite a bit on the financial side of this and understanding and having instrumentation on how to measure, how to make sure that we have, um, you know, you turn down the service if you're not using it, how to make sure we have the discipline, the mechanics and some governance around the financial management of being in the cloud. So it's not a set it and forget it. And, and I think that's the other piece that has helped us actually see the value um, is that we're, we're being very disciplined about when we migrate, how we migrate to the cloud, so the readiness piece, and then when we have our cloud environment, managing the costs to make sure that we've got the mechanics to understand when to turn things on, when to turn them down, the governance, the reviews, the monitoring in place. I think that's a second piece that's really important that people don't think about it until they see the cost skyrocket and they say, oh, we have a problem. So, so for us, we put, we, you know, we, we listen a lot to peers in the industry and, and, um, across industry. And we heard people talk about, oh, 
you know, when you get there, the cost can run away. So you've got to think about how we would do that. And so that ties nicely with our discipline around how do we manage, run and grow. And so that's that's just another continuation of, of that methodology of, of being efficient and effective with our funding. I really love that thoughtful approach that you've taken. And, and I think you're, you're right that so many people are underwhelmed by the results, but, but oftentimes right. it's due to a lack of a grander plan and an analysis of what's working and what isn't and course correcting along the way that, that good governance uh, is, is important hygiene necessary right. to ensure that you're constantly improving. And speaking of good governance and, and hygiene, another fascinating aspect that I, that you've spoken about is the development of an architecture community, as you refer to it. Um, yeah that you have developed and, and talk a bit about what that entails and, and what value you've derived from assembling a community such as yeah. that. Yeah, this is something that we really accelerated this year. Um, and, you know, traditional IT organizations, um, you know, if I think back to my over 20 year career, I there had been a point in time where there were these architecture review boards and we had to go through those to make sure that it checked the box and all you needed was a check and then you moved on but then you'd sit in a backlog and wait for the review board and you didn't know what was going to happen once you came out and sometimes they set you backwards and everybody was frustrated and they didn't really understand what you were solving for anyway you know that was all the talk track so so that's not what we're doing and, and that is why the, the word community is really important and practice is really important because what we are doing instead is saying, well, what problems are we trying to solve? Let's start there. And the problem we're solving for is without a doubt, we live in a more complex and interconnected world. We are not solving for technology that just needs to connect inside of the company and information flowing inside of the company. We are talking about participating and being part of many types of ecosystems where we have to send data out, receive data back in. And so how we do that is really important, point one. Two, the second piece to this is our business and the needs of our customers are continuously evolving. What does that mean? We have to have flexibility in turning on new services, turning off ones that no longer are required, deploying new capabilities for new products. And so that requires a new level of flexibility as well. I think about that, um, both the ecosystem piece as well as this flexibility in our business piece as two problems we need to make sure we solve. And to solve for that, you need to have a composable business models, you know, in terms of how the technology talks to each other. And so to do that, you need technology that's composable, that's got components, that's modular and is flexible. So the problem we're solving for when we think about an architecture community is we are not setting up ivory towers that come down and give you standards and practices. Instead, we are orienting them to help us be nimble by helping us componentize the key outcomes, whether it's oriented towards customer journeys or core enterprise processes or core products. How do we do that through that lens? And so if you work backwards, then what's the mandate of the community, architecture community? Their mandate is more about guardrails and saying, if we have 50 of these, let's all align that we don't need 50, we need these five. 
between these five, let's pick one of the five. So these guardrails. So there's there's decision-making around technology stacks, and um, there is decision-making about patterns and anti-patterns. There is an element of minimum standards on governance. Um, and so the architecture community is about creating these guardrails and blueprints that help us with these component interactions. And it's more based on principles and these outcomes than it is on, you know, traditional perhaps architecture boards that had these mandates to just stamp things. We're not in the business of stamping things. We're in the business of outcomes. And so we're measuring the the, va the value of these communities on did we actually produce an outcome that now sets us up for long-term value creation, for long-term value. So it is a little bit different. And that's why, you know, we don't have one master enterprise architect. We have a community of architects because we want them to stay close to the business unit or the core function they support. But we do then rally around a practice that then establishes these guardrails and helps also solve the more critical problems. So they may be deployed to a particular business unit to help be advisors on how to think through a particular set of problems. So there's we're we're approaching it in a different way for sure. And it's only been a few months, so we're testing and learning and we're also open-minded about iterating our way through it and adjusting as we see it work better or less. We we really have this conversation around what should we consider adjusting? What should we continue doing? And that also helps us make sure that we're adapting as our world adapts as well. So it's not a set in stone. This is not, you know, traditional architecture for sure in terms of how it's set up. Yeah, yeah. Again, a very thoughtful approach to say the least. I, I know um, you have a team that's been investigating generative AI. This is certainly a topic that is white hot at present. And, you know, it's it's remarkable as, we, as we're having this conversation and we're, we're only roughly six months into, uh, the, since the release of uh, OpenAI's ChatGPT 3.5, which in many ways sort of, uh, brought this to the public's grander attention. And I wonder in that short amount of time, um, what conclusions you've drawn regarding the potential value of this to, to a business like yours? Yeah, I, I know. We, we cannot have a conversation without <laughs> Gen AI. <laughs> <laughs> that is for sure. Um, and it's so fascinating because if you think back to artificial intelligence as a body of, of capability and work and technology, it's not something that started with ChatGPT in November of 2022, right? It's been around for 50 years. And many companies, including ours, have different AI capabilities deployed, but they've been more narrow, like natural language processing capabilities. And even, you know, if you think about your phone, if you use Siri or Alexa, right, you're interacting with AI every day and probably didn't even realize it as a general consumer until you interacted with ChatGPT. So, so OpenAI and ChatGPT and Google Bard and all these different capabilities have moved this um, technology from, from the back of the you know, computer science, data science, engineering to the front to a general consumer uh, interaction. And that's exciting. And I think that is um, generating more conversation. So, and, imagination of the art of the possible. So I think that's what's changed. It's not so much that we haven't been doing uh, and experimenting with 
AI capabilities and transformer models. It's more about that now it's got a spotlight on it. It's been amplified. So what we've done is um, we have um, data scientists, we have data engineers, software engineers. Um, we actually thought about this to say, you know, we're already working on AI as a broad umbrella, machine learning and deep learning. But how do we hone in on the GPT model acceleration and new capabilities? And how do we think about innovating within that context? So we have a responsible AI committee that's at the executive level. We set that up to make sure that we were looking at it from the, I like to say, defensive and offensive. The defensive meaning, are we aware and understand the risks for adopting this type of technology um, from cybersecurity to regulatory compliance, which is very important to us, to personal and individual privacy of data that we talked about earlier, which is also very important to us. Um, and then you think about equity and fairness in models, et cetera. So responsible AI committee, we have a responsible AI working group that brings together a variety of different subject matter experts to think about the use cases that we're, we're experimenting with. And then underneath that, we have an experimentation track that has our own Liberty Mutual instance of GPT in partnership with Microsoft currently. And within that context, we you know have full control of, of the data set, if you will, um, and within that, running experiments. So that's the state we're in today. We're actively running experiments around use cases, and we're really looking at it in terms of internal employee productivity. How do we improve the time our employees spend on reading documents? How do we improve that to summarize it for them? And, and accelerate them from, you know, and maybe it's 5% improvement in their day where they're spending less time doing that work. So we're looking at that working with our legal teams, working with um, all, all, all sorts of functions. So it's not just one area, but the, the, the use case is around summarization of documents. And we feel like that's a place where you can experiment, you can test and learn, you can start to understand what is engineering prompt? What's a prompt engineer? Is that a job? Is that a role type? Is that just a set of skills? And, and a lot of this, we don't know. We're out in front in terms of testing and learning. We're also talking to other organizations in a variety of industries to say, what are you doing? What are you learning? What are you seeing? Um, for example, uh, you know, you're loading a document into um, GPT. If you have a 3.5 model, you have a limitation on the size, right? The tokens, right? 4,000 tokens if you're at uh, version GPT-4, you've got 8,000 tokens and so on. And there's people saying, well, we have 32,000 tokens, like all these different pieces of learning. And so the experimentation track is us learning about how do we um, improve our own expertise? How do we understand the build versus buy? Because as you imagine, there are every day, I feel like a new company that comes online that says that they've figured it out on some aspect of how to maximize value from these large language models. Um, so for us, we are, I do believe it's not hype. I do believe this is a real capability that can help us be more productive, spend more time on complex work and um, make us more efficient and effective in terms of how we you know, spend time reading lots of documents and material and we can kind of shorten that window. 
it will never, in my opinion, at, at, in this stage of our experimentation, replace the human. I think we will have humans in the loop for a very long time. So for us, we're not thinking about this as a replace. We're thinking about this as an augment. How do we augment? How do we give our employees better tools and capabilities? We're always working on that. We started our conversation in terms of stakeholders are not just customers and agents, brokers, but also employees. And how do we improve their experience at work? So, so that's part of, of how we're thinking about this in the broad sense. But we're definitely in horizon one of this journey. Um, and there, there is more to come. And, and I'm sure, you know, Peter, you, you are, you know, watching and speaking with so many different people. Everyone's got a different point of view. Some um, leaders that I've met with are kind of watching and learning and, and waiting. Um, we are not waiting. We are jumping in and learning and experimenting. And we're, we're we want to be a tech forward insurance company. You can't do that if you don't invest some time and energy and focus to experiment and learn. And that's the stage we're in. Very well said. Yeah, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. I, I love the the extent to which you're jumping in to understand the art of the possible yeah. and, and translating that for the organization. And I, the, again, yet again, the thoughtful approach you're taking to it. Um, I wanted to ask you about other trends. This is, a, yeah. a, of course, one that is very prominent right now and in the minds yeah. on the lips of so many executives and peers of yours and non-technology peers, I should mention as well. Um, as you look to the future, what other trends uh, excite you, be they people, process, technology, whatever might come to mind? You know, I love technology and where it's headed. And I always, in my career, have looked at it from the perspective of what problem am I solving? So my philosophy is not about chasing shiny objects for the sake of testing. It's more about looking at emerging tech to understand what could it possibly help us do better so one area that I am watching and super curious about is quantum computing. And, um, you know, quantum computing just changes the way that the data is recorded and stored and the calculations are done. And um, for me, it, I think about the possibilities, you know, in my old world, I was in manufacturing and financial services more broadly, and I can see manufacturing, you know, really having a, a impact in terms of the opportunities there. But in financial services and insurance, I think for us, um, the quantum algorithms, I know Goldman Sachs talked about it maybe two years ago to price financial instruments, for example. I just think about the ability of the speed and the processing power that that will bring and how will that change how we do algorithms? How will that change how we process? Uh, that's my offensive side. On the defensive side, I do worry about that in the context of cyber, <laughs> right? Because um, the calculation type that quantum computing is really for is combinatorics calculation, which I'm not an expert at but I understand enough to just be dangerous, but that's central to encryption, right? And with quantum computing, you can now potentially crack that encryption much faster. So that poses a threat as well. So I am just exploring and learning and watching, but but that is one area that I'm excited about, one trend that I'm excited about for sure. 
I wanted to also ask you, Monica, um, for you to reflect a little bit on on your pathway to your current role. Uh, actually, like like a, a remarkable number of people uh, who uh, you spent a considerable time at General Electric uh, for quite some time, perhaps one of the great uh, talent factories uh, in the world. Uh, and no doubt that was a, a seminal experience for you along the way. Um, but, you know, it's still at a very a relatively young age, you've achieved uh, great heights. Uh, and, and I wonder what have been some of the difference makers for you along the way? Uh, some of the things that, that, that um, aided your rise uh, to your current role. Yeah, um, I definitely I'm a math brain person. So I always think in formulas and whatnot. And I don't have a particular set of variables that I would say oh, it was these two things. But I would say, and perhaps, you know, from the training that I received early on, and I spent 17 years in GE, so a, a, lot, a lot of training. I benefited from amazing people, um, learning from them. So I stand on their shoulders, as well as training, incredible training, and, and at Liberty, uh, equally, uh, incredible amount of people and con continuously learning. So for me, I'm a, I'm a learner. I love to to take in information and I'm very deeply curious about many, many things. And so I think that like love for learning, I think Satya Nadella from Microsoft put it perfectly that we need to be a, a group of learn it alls, not know it alls. And so I, I, I am definitely, I subscribe to that mindset. So I think there's definitely a mindset of learn it and be humble about what you don't know and say, I don't know this, teach me, tell me, or seek people out. So that, that would be one thing. Um, the other piece I always say is personally, I anchor on delivering on my commitments. Uh, if I make a commitment, I, I say, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do it. If it's not going to happen, I'm going to let you know why, and I'm going to take accountability for it. So there is a sense of delivering on commitments that I think um, propels you to to move forward and to try new and different things. And, and from that, you aggregate a set of experiences that then position you to be able to take on different roles. Um, but I would say maybe if I were to say, you know, what was one piece of all that in your formula, which one had the greatest weight? If I were to answer that question, I would maybe say um, collaboration and a disposition to engage stakeholders at all levels. And um, really thinking through who needs to be engaged. I always say, I don't care what function you're in. We're going to solve this together. Let's have a team of teams concept and let's approach this that way. And so my willingness to partner and collaborate and invite people into problem solving probably is one piece that I am proud of that I, I do with um, very deliberate about doing and, and engaging my team to do the same thing and not be afraid to be transparent and show people, here's what we know, what we don't know, invite people in and collaborate at a level that maybe others would hesitate. Sometimes there's a sense of like, oh, let me solve this and come back to you with it done. And I, I've always in my career, um, maybe as a child, immigrant child, learned that you have to rely on your community and be willing to um, engage all people at all levels. And, and so maybe I would conclude with that. Certainly a thread through this conversation, Monica, is just how thoughtful your approaches are, not only to your career, but to the, the, the team that you manage now. It, it's really been remarkable to learn uh, the methods that you've used and the journey that you're on. So thank you so much for a, a, a terrific conversation. Uh, thank you so much, Peter. This was fantastic. It was my pleasure to be here.